Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat Podcast. Hello, and welcome everyone to the Blue Hat Podcast. We have Kaylee McRae here, who gave an amazing talk on the Yandex leak at the Blue Hat Conference that we just had recently. And we want to go ahead and dive into her talk and just hear a little bit more about Kaylee and her work in privacy engineering and what's going on in the world and what are her concerns. Kaylee, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, so I have a very cross-functional background, which makes sense because privacy is an incredibly cross-functional discipline that touches a lot of different areas. There are certainly areas where it overlaps with security, certainly areas where sometimes I have feel like I'm a lawyer without a law degree. And absolutely sometimes where I'm like, yeah, I'm just a software engineer today. It's a very cross-functional discipline, and, and my background kind of reflects that. So I was a political science major in college. I spent years, actually, as a legal secretary to pay my way through comedy classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade. I thought I wanted to be a comedy writer, and then I realized otherwise, and thank goodness that part of my life is done. And so then I did a software engineering boot camp, and I was a software engineer for several years, And I found myself, especially because I have that interest in politics, getting drawn into the conversation around election security as that was becoming such a huge mainstream conversation, especially during the pandemic. And that got me starting to attend some security conferences, some of which because of the pandemic, actually, they were online, they were free. And suddenly they were accessible to a whole group of people who weren't able to access them before. So that was an interesting silver lining. And that started to pull me into the community. And then when my last job ended, because I was actually working sort of vaguely election-related work, it ended after the election, this job came up at Confiant, and they were looking for someone who had an unusual set of skills. (laughs) And it worked out quite faithfully. And so that is where I am today. And then I you know, we're we're always looking to do privacy research to find vulnerabilities that we can build into our product. And then we just keep stumbling into things that are bigger than us <laughs> and, and end up being only tangentially related to what we even do. So I have had a very interesting run with the research and security conferences in the last two years. It's been a really interesting ride. I looked you up beforehand and you've presented at multiple conferences. So I am wanting to tie that into the whole comedy thing because does that (laughs) did you feel more comfortable on stage because of that training I mean this is totally off topic but I can see how that really helps with the presentation skills in some ways the creative writing part of it yeah it, it definitely helps me feel more comfortable with the writing side of it like that's the one thing that it's like I know I can craft a story. It's just a matter of, you know, dotting my I's, crossing my T's and making sure I can back up absolutely everything I'm saying and say it respectfully. But when it comes to being on stage, I'm just one of those people who gets nervous on stage and no amount of experience really makes that go away. It just makes me more aware of how that affects me and how to mitigate it. Yeah. And so that itself is an advantage. And 
I'm more comfortable when things go wrong. That's one great thing that I think improv teaches you is that in many ways, mistakes are a gift. They move things forward in a way you wouldn't expect. And that usually takes you down the more interesting path. Adaptability. That's a huge positive skill that you have right there. I mean, I think that's needed in the security industry just in general, because things never seem to go the way that we think it's going to (laughs) go. And so you loved learning about cybersecurity so much that you pursued an advanced degree in the topic. And did that solidify it even more? I mean, that's a rhetorical question. Obviously it did because here you are, but I love that you touched on it and then said, I want to dive deeper into this and get a degree. And then here you are on some of the biggest stages in the industry. What about cybersecurity like piqued your interest? Was it the digging? Was it the finding? Was it the research? Was it the, aha, we, we know what it is? There's a certain part that really drove you to get to this point. I think there are several parts of it that really interest me. I mean, I love solving a tough problem. And I think cybersecurity and privacy are where the tough, scary problems are right now. And I'm drawn to those. I think actually part of it is as much as I love the investigation side of it, there's a bit of a solving a mystery, hunting for something. I love a CTF challenge. I really like getting to dig in and investigate it and hunt for threats. But at the same time, I think when something is too easy, it doesn't have enough to teach you. And so what I really have enjoyed about cybersecurity is how much it has challenged me to grow. I never thought of myself as a math, science or tech person. I majored in political science and then I tried to do comedy and law. I mean, so, <laughs> you know, I stumbled into this and then was like very surprised that I was vaguely competent in the first place. <laughs> so, I actually just started grad school. This is my first semester and God help me, I have a term paper due tonight. <laughs> well, thank you for being oh, here. <laughs> why did I do that to myself? <laughs> but, but it's been incredibly rewarding getting to learn about all of this. It has solidified my confidence, I think, actually in my software engineering skill set, like so much more. I'm sorry I didn't see this, but you said you went to a boot camp. I too went to a boot camp. What boot camp did you go to? So I did Flatiron School's full okay. stack because I had a job I couldn't afford to quit. And they had a online, very self-paced and accessible boot camp. Amazing. I love it. I think the boot camp for me, I went to Hackbright and it was one of those things where you had to quit your job and, you know, but that 12 weeks, I think it changed everything for me. You know, I went into that. I was... I had no idea what went into making software. And I'm sure you had that aha moment yourself, but it's an enlightening experience to be able to look and go, that's exactly how an API works. I remember when I started, I'm like, I have no idea, but I love that because then you're able to have those conversations. And for you, dig into the code when you find things and understand it and know exactly what you're looking at instead of having to rely on someone else to help you figure that out. Like you can do that yourself. That's amazing. Yeah, my program personally, it took me nine months and they warned me. They're like, you can put 20 hours a week into it. It's going to take you nine months. And I was like, oh, I'll do it faster. (laughs) No, it took me nine months. It was a really long process, but I came out of it. So glad I did it. For me, it was a means to an end. I actually was still trying to do the comedy writing thing, but I didn't have enough flexibility in my job to be able to take part in the things I was getting invited to. So for me, it started out as a means to an end. And then I paused the comedy stuff to focus on it. And I was like, I will pick them up when I'm ready and when I miss it. And then I actually just really 
liked doing the software engineering and I never missed the comedy, (laughs) but I never picked it back up. Oh, man, that was the universe telling you where you needed to be. If you can just walk us through a little bit for those listeners that may not be familiar, how would you define privacy engineering in simple terms and maybe, you know, get a little bit more complex for those of us that already know what that is, but maybe need a little more context. What is privacy engineering? So privacy engineering is a little tricky in that I think every company defines the role a little differently and needs something different from their privacy engineers. But a privacy engineer is typically someone who has both a compliance and a software engineering skill set. And they can analyze code and see where there are possible violations of policies or regulations. And they can also possibly code solutions to make sure that we are generalizing and encrypting data properly, making sure that we have the tools to handle data access requests. So it definitely has a compliance bent, but I think it is something that also has kind of a deeper calling in the way that security does, where there is definitely a sense that you are fighting for something and protecting something. And the work really matters. And that makes it really rewarding. Does the data or the policy around what falls into the privacy category, does that change? Is it always evolving or things being added, things being like, okay, we thought this was you know, something we want to protect, but now we're realizing we do not need to? Like, how does that work? Who determines what needs to be protected or what, what we consider privacy data? Is it each company defines that or is there more of a global structure around this? It's a combination. Certainly, as more privacy regulations are getting passed, certainly more privacy laws are getting passed, especially in the United States. We've got a complex patchwork that all approach it very differently. And each of those laws defines classes of protected data, some very vaguely, some very specifically. And one of the challenges of the sort of compliance role is that, you know, laws aren't really set in stone. They're constantly evolving and and being updated by precedent and specific legal interpretations. So there is a huge amount of it that is defined by understood legal definitions and industry consensus. At the same time within a company, it's up to you to decide what data is actually necessary. What data do we actually truly need? And then weigh that against the risk and responsibility of having and protecting that data. You know, when it when the data breach comes around, they can't leak data you don't have. Right. There are so many incentives to properly minimize data. But personally identifiable information is always personally identifiable information. And and that's a pretty strict and I think a fairly consistent definition. Right. And then you also have to have your company's definition or, you know, the privacy parameters. But then I assume you have to lean into things like GDPR and other, you know, if there's other more nuanced frameworks from other, you know, the EU and so on and so forth. So I could see that being, that's a lot of work. That does sound like a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of protection. you know, we were mostly dealing with personally identifiable information and then it was sort of at a company level. And also reading the room of the consensus of what we consider protected data. But now we are seeing a lot of legal definitions that include sensitive data and are defining that somewhat differently. So it is getting increasingly complex. Yes. And I would love to pivot to your Blue Hat presentation. I enjoyed it. I did not attend the conference, but I watched it 
after the fact. And I loved it. Your stage presence is great. But the topic was so interesting. Your talk was the Yandex leak, how a Russian search giant uses consumer data. Let's talk about, can you give us a brief overview of your talk and Yandex and its significance in the global internet ecosystem? And it sounds like I had no idea how far spread Yandex was until I watched your talk. I thought it was just a Russian company. And then I saw your talk and I was like, I had no idea that it just, it was everywhere. So if you could please give us an overview of of all of that. What is Yandex? What about your talk? Yeah, I mean, so much of that I didn't fully appreciate until I started working on this. And it sort of fell into my lap. Privacy researcher who we've worked with in the past and have a good relationship with was looking at something different in a different part of the code base. And then I just, out of pure curiosity, as more of a personal project, just started digging in and I was kind of curious to see what else was there. And then we started finding some things that raised alarm bells, (laughs) like the... uh, classify children's age by voice. And I was like, "Uh oh, no, that's not good. (laughs) And then the the home and work geolocation and finding people's neighbors that I was like, okay, this is, there's something here and it's worth digging into. And then of course we pitched it right back to the researchers we'd been working with, but they were like, this is something different. This is great, but this is your own thing. So we had their blessing to kind of move on with it in our own right. And then it was kind of like, okay, well, what do we have? And then what does it mean? And then I started, we didn't really fully appreciate how big this was going to be until I started to just try to untangle the question of who owns Yandex right now. We knew that the war in Ukraine was going to be a significant elephant in the room, but I didn't realize quite how much it was deeply intertwined in the story and quite how much drama there has been over Yandex and controlling it within Russia. And I also didn't fully appreciate, actually, even as I was giving the talk and people were coming to talk to me that like Yandex is actually a very commonly used tool within OSINT and among security researchers because it has a great image search feature and a lot of people prefer its interface. So Yandex is not just a massive Russian platform and it's really difficult to understate just how big Yandex is in Russia and just how much it owns. It's got a chokehold on the tech industry in Russia, just in terms of how large and how advanced it is. But it also has absolutely expanded to other countries. But again, you know, its tools are actually just generally quite useful and appealing. And its SDK, I think, ended up being quite the big story that it is embedded in so many apps. And that SDK funnels data from people who probably don't even realize that they are Yandex data subjects, and it sends them back to Russian servers. And these are apps that we all use every day, probably. Yeah. And to be honest, that story was early last year. And so I'm not sure now which apps that still applies to, but there were certainly some apps that specifically targeted Ukrainian users. There were VPNs. And again, you know, VPNs are supposed to protect your privacy. (laughs) So that in itself raises a lot of questions. And it was really surprising to me, you know, just how huge Yandex is, despite I think a lot of folks in the West not being familiar with it. It is a huge global presence. 
I had not heard of Yandex. Well, I mean, the leak, but there was, I worked for a previous company, then it was a large streaming platform. And in order to have that service in Russia, Russia would not allow the American platform there. It had to be on there. And that's when I first heard this company. I'm like, who is this? I know you touched on a little bit, but for those who maybe aren't familiar with Yandex, is it, would you liken it to like our Google, but more? It's like Russia's version of Google and they're so powerful because they only allow their own things there. So like there really aren't a lot of options or is it, what is Yandex? Yeah, I think Google in terms of scale is the, and in terms of where the platform reaches is the easiest comparison and probably the most apt comparison. But one thing I think that's very different between Google and Yandex is Google is facing a huge amount of pushback in the West for its accusations of monopolizing. Whereas Yandex seems to have government support in almost enforcing the monopolies (laughs) that it has. So it has in many ways an advantage over Google, at least within regions of Russian influence, which is, I think, quite itself quite larger than many people in the West realize. Wow. Yeah. For folks, when this talk is published, I recommend you watch this because Kaylee really goes into detail and what you think you've know you heard about this, the amount of data that you dive into, it makes it where I didn't know there was any tie with the index to the Netherlands. That was new. And I think from your talk, they're no longer connected. Is that correct? They're two different entities now? Oh, the Netherlands wishes they were no longer connected. (laughs) Yeah, I certainly did not expect that a a massive Russian platform, especially with that influence, would be owned by a a foreign company, let alone a company in the EU. But its parent slash holding company, which is called Yandex NV, is based in the Netherlands. And they are quite concerned for obvious reasons. They're in kind of a lose-lose situation where they are facing, on the one side, sanctions from the EU for obvious reasons, and then on the other side, tremendous pressure from Russia, where so many of their assets are based, to comply with the government. And there's always been that pressure, but it has intensified, obviously, since the war started in ways that I don't think anyone was fully prepared for. And so it's being pulled in two different directions. And it's not hard to see why they would want to sell off what is obviously kind of an irreplaceable asset that it says a lot. But they have, as far as I know, and I and I do try to monitor this, they have not been able to sell it. Part of the reason is that Putin has, oh, it's called a, well, okay, So there's this so-called golden share, (laughs) and it's held not specifically by Putin or the Kremlin. It is held by the, I believe it's called the PIF, but it is essentially a Kremlin-controlled body that itself controls a very crucial share of Yandex. And through that golden share, Putin essentially gets to approve any sale of Yandex's assets. Interesting. They can approve or deny that. And they have a lot of control, too, over the board and major decisions. And that's been there since 2019. So that's not new. But it does make it very hard to sell because it means, okay, Yandex has to be sold to someone Putin approves. So that's almost certainly going to be some oligarch of Putin's choosing. On the other side, this company based in the Netherlands can't really, for sanctions reasons, 
sell to an oligarch that has been sanctioned by the EU. So the list of people that are going to make both sides happy is almost none. Yeah, That is itself a huge problem. There's so few oligarchs who can afford to buy Yandex, which I think was most recently valued at like $14 billion, and not be sanctioned. And then to top that off in Russia, there's this law that says a foreign company that is trying to sell off Russian assets, because I think they anticipated a run like this, has to sell it at a 50% discount and then pay a 10% tax on top of that. So it's a painful loss either way. And there are just very few possible scenarios where a sale gets approved at this point. And so nationalization is very much on the table. But there's this fear then that nationalization might trigger a bigger brain drain and Yannick's might lose even more engineers because thousands fled when the war on Ukraine began. So it's between a rock and a hard place, and it's kind of stuck there. In your presentation, you mentioned there's a discrepancy around the date that the code was discovered. I believe it was either the start of the Ukrainian, Russian-Ukrainian war, or July of 2022. Why is there a discrepancy? I'm curious about that as well, because it's not a huge discrepancy. So I don't see like a significant motive. It must just for anyone to be misleading. I think it's just confusion. So the code was leaked in late January, I believe, of 2023. And in the original post, it was leaked on breach forums, which was taken down and then almost immediately popped back up in a new form. And that's a whole can of worms right there. In this original breach forums post, it says it dates back to July of 2022. And then I think where the leak started to get attention and traction was a Russian engineer who has a blog, I think his name is Arseny Shestikov, basically went through this leak, ran it by some Yandex contacts he had to confirm that it was real, which I think was everyone's immediate thought was like, no way is something like this real. And it got confirmed. And he said, according to his contacts who had looked at the code, that it dated back to the essentially the exact date that Russia invaded Ukraine, which is a good story. Yeah. (laughs) But when I started looking through the code, I actually stumbled across within crypto, there's some Jupyter notebooks. And Jupyter notebooks are basically a lot of little IDEs that will execute Python code. And so when you upload a Jupyter notebook to GitHub, the outputs of the queries that you run are actually uploaded with it. So you can kind of see the queries that this engineer was running on Yandex's database on some of the outputs, which is interesting because the database was not leaked along with the rest of the code. So to me, that immediately caught my interest because they said, oh, no user data was leaked. And I was like, I bet they didn't see these (laughs) notebooks. But a lot of it looks like test data and data from non-production environments. And there was test data that was dated July 2022. And it's rare that you would like future date test data. Like that doesn't make too much sense. So my sense is that original July 2022 date is actually accurate. That makes sense. But then that raises the question of why wait a year almost? It would have been 11 months from the date of the war in Ukraine or about five months from, you know, and that July 2022 date was why release it when they did. And that's something that there's no clear answer on. Maybe we'll never know. In layman's terms, for those that are not familiar with the specifics of privacy engineering, what 
analytics data was involved in the index leak? And why would that be a concern? Like what could be done, you know, if someone got a hold of some of that or did something malicious or why are we concerned with this leak? Right. So the leak, it's, and usually when we have a leak, it's specifically a data breach and it's user data and it's out there on the dark web and it's being sold. And so there's a very direct concern. In this case, what was leaked was the code. We don't have, we don't even have the version history. We don't even have like the GitHub repository that would give us some of the, the visibility into the history of this code. We don't have the database either. There's some sort of stubs for constructing and training machine learning models, but not the models themselves. So what we have is the code and we can see what code that Yandex is primed to collect and what it does with that data. And then the big shadow hanging over it all is then what the Kremlin could do with that data when it one way or the other gets a hold of it. I think Yandex built essentially a very effective tool for surveillance without necessarily intending it to be for that purpose, without considering how it could be misused. And I think there's such a deeper story here of what happens when you build a tool for one thing and then the world changes. Because I think that's been a constant (laughs) theme over the last few years for many tech companies and their users. So what is really concerning about what was revealed in this leak is you can see what Crypta does with the data that is collected from all over Yandex's services. And Crypta is essentially a behavioral analytics service. It's not like Google Analytics. That's more of what AppMetrica does. It's not collecting the data directly. It's pulling the data from all of these sources It's analyzing them, this data and these data points, and then it is able to draw interesting conclusions about a user from that data and create pretty holistic profiles about what a user's household looks like, where they live, age, gender, a lot of details about their children, definitely a lot of details about spending habits, traveling habits, And the reason that they're the pretense for why they do this is to create segments for ad targeting. And that is a fairly common practice. That's not particular to Yandex. That's, you know, a a very common function within the ad tech ecosystem. So it is creating these very, very, very detailed and specific (laughs) hyper-targeted profiles, ostensibly for ad targeting. But it's very easy to... A, be creeped out by just seeing right. <laughs> what data they're collecting, where they're pulling it from, and what they can do with it. Um, and B, imagine how that could very, very, very easily be twisted into something genuinely scary from a national security perspective. Absolutely. I, I know that we all have come across those family members or friends or whomever that say, I have nothing to hide. Why would I need to worry about this? I know that I've had this conversation multiple times with family members about the importance of protecting your data and your just personal information in general. For those, you know, Yandex operates in multiple countries, given the leak and just your understanding with privacy engineering in general. Do you have any suggestions on like, because of this and because of anything else that's coming up, we're using these apps, we're using things, we're on, you're Googling some website and then you see it in your Instagram feed, you know, so all this stuff is being collected. But how can we protect ourselves as users in this age of collecting data? Is there any tips and tricks that you 
suggest? It is so hard to effectively do that without going so far out of your way that I would be skeptical that the average user would really be willing and able to do that. Right. You know, I think so many folks, when we are on the internet, we are escaping from a world that is very hard and full of a lot of obstacles and a lot of decision fatigue. And we just want everything to be easier. Yeah. And we just want everything to be convenient. And that is completely understandable. And it's also a little bit of a trap because you think, oh, well, they're going to take this data. They're going to personalize my experience and that will make my life easier. And sometimes that's true. Where I think, you know, things are quite fuzzy is where that data goes next, that it doesn't just stop there at the things that you expect as a consumer and want it to. And so that's really frustrating. You know, there are so many basic tools like using a password manager to make sure that your accounts are protected and not easily accessible and using a VPN. But, you know, they're at the level at this point of like locking your door. Right. Using a VPN is like locking a door. Obviously, you should do it, but it's not going to do much against a really advanced form of data collection. Yeah. Blocking your door is not going to stop a burglar. That's what makes him a burglar. Right. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) You still do it. But it's unfortunately so far out of, I think, the average consumer's control. Yeah. And I think that's part of why I have been doing a lot of the conferences that I have in that I think that the average user does not fully understand that. And one angle that I have surprisingly wandered into is just how often this accidentally becomes a national security issue. Last year, I gave a talk in the Crypto Privacy Village at DEF CON, and it was about, we named it Fultracus because we wanted it to sound like a Harry Potter villain, especially devious. And it was using steganography to collect incredibly invasive fingerprinting data. What made it especially unusual is that it was coming from an Eastern European company. It was targeting users, Android users in the US. And it was doing it at a very, very, very high volume. And that gap between the person collecting the data and the people they were collecting data on immediately raised concern, especially the date was essentially leading up to the timing of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And so now it's sort of like, perhaps you have nothing to hide. Perhaps you are fortunate enough to be in a position where you have nothing to be afraid of by being who you are. That is unfortunately not true for a lot of people. Right. But even if that is true, how would you feel if you knew that that data was flowing to a hostile government? Right. They don't have to send out spies. They can literally just buy the data from a data broker. That is how much of the Wild West it is. It is like Texas in the 1840s out there. (laughs) Just wildly unregulated and wildly unprotected. And that, I think, is a newer angle, but one that I hope is going to be more compelling to the average person who feels that they have nothing to hide. One of the first things that happened to me when I became a software engineer is I was working on this ticket and there was essentially a little bit of a data breach in that some accounts were merged by use of a QR code tool that just malfunctioned. And the accounts were merging like incredibly sensitive personal information. 
addresses, phone numbers, a size, it was bad. And so we were very quickly trying to, you know, set up proper notifications, et cetera, and separate those accounts and end the the exposure. One of the people whose accounts was exposed was a woman who was fleeing domestic violence. And the person her account was merged into was her estranged husband. And so that for me was a big light bulb moment of, you know, even if I am relatively safe and privileged, especially in California, you know, you don't have to have done anything wrong to have something to hide. Yandex is not unique in what they well, this is more of a question, not a statement, actually. Is Yandex unique in what they collect? Or do all companies collect very similar data? But Yandex just unfortunately had their stuff put out in the public. Like, we think we're like, oh, that's horrible. They're doing all this. Look at all the stuff they're collecting. But is that just a normal baseline of what everyone's collecting right now? I think to a certain degree it is. But it is hard to say because, again, like the biggest difference between Yandex and any other major tech company is Yandex's code was leaked and no other tech companies was. And so having just not seen necessarily what other tech companies are doing, I can't say for sure. But one thing that I do see, because I work specifically in the ad tech space, is we do look at APKs and embedded third-party apps and like the data points that they collect. And we look sometimes at fingerprinting. And so I do have some visibility into the broader ecosystem. And in general, it's not uncommon, especially with browser fingerprinting techniques to take in some surprisingly invasive data points. Mm. It's not so usual to be able to aggregate that data in the way that Yandex is able to And I think one thing that makes Yandex especially unusual is just the breadth of reach of its services. Not only are they taking analytics from apps and web traffic from its partners, but they are also, they have a taxi app. So they know where you're going and and who you went with. So Medusa published a really interesting story just before I presented this research during Hacker Summer Camp. It showed that Yandex is now required by an executive order that the president of Russia signed, or it might have been the prime minister. But this executive order went into effect beginning of September, and it requires Yandex to share all taxi data on a sort of constant 24-7 basis with the FSB. Wow. And prior to that, Yandex was certainly subject to a lot of data access requests that, you know, isn't particular to the Russian government. I'm sure Google, Microsoft, and anyone who has data about users faces a subpoena here and there. And Medusa revealed that Yandex had previously complied with about 84% of government access requests. And one of those requests had been able to use taxi data to fabricate charges against a Medusa reporter. And Medusa is sort of a Russian journalist in exile, is the publication. So they have an unusual visibility into Russia and also a certain tension. Uh, it's, it's antagonistic, and it, although it's certainly one-sided, I think. And so Medusa's reporter had charges fabricated against them. That taxi data also revealed the confidential location of their offices, which were in an adjacent country. And so... That, I think, is what especially makes Yandex unusual. It doesn't just have access to the analytics that a lot of tech companies have one way or the other. It is able to 
pull data from so many sources, including smart devices. And certainly we know a lot of tech companies in the U.S. have smart devices. And that's been its own story many a time over what data they're collecting. It's the ability to pull all of this together to create these profiles. You have given this specific presentation and spoken on this topic in many of like the biggest conferences that many people in security would love to someday be on those stages. With Blue Hat, what drew you to submit to Blue Hat? What about that conference draws you? I think there was an air of mystery because I didn't know that much about Blue Hat. So I was like, ooh, secret conference. <laughs> but also I had attended the Microsoft MSRC researchers parties during Hacker Summer Camp this year and yeah. the year before. And it had always been such an excellent experience. The people you meet there are just so fascinating. And so I was like, if this conference is just an expansion of that experience, then I'm very interested in attending. And I had also talked to a few Microsoft researchers at the party, which was just after my Black Hat talk. And they had said that they had found it interesting. And so I was interested in how they found it interesting and how they thought it applied. So I, I was really eager to explore that too. And Blue Hat was such a great experience in that it has like the accessibility and comfort of a smaller conference. You can get into all of the talks that you want. You can talk to nearly anybody you want. And then the quality of speakers and attendees is so incredible. The people you end up in a room with and you can end yeah. up in a conversation with. That was such an incredible experience to have both a small conference and a conference that has like that high quality was such a nice, refreshing experience. Yeah, I started at Microsoft just coming up on two years. And so February was my first Blue Hat. Oh, and then last year was my first MSRC research party, the one that was at Area 15. It was space themed. It was so fun. It was the amazing. The space party was so fun. <laughs> so fun. That was my first. <laughs> that one, I was like, I have never been to a party like this. I miss this one, but I saw the pictures. I was looking on, well, I guess it's Twitter X, Twitter X, whatever it is. A previous person on the podcast says, I refuse to call it X until they change the URLs, until they make it actually something different. It's still Twitter. So I like that uh, rationalization. But this year, the party with the pins and, and then this year, Blue Hat with the slight Barbie theme. Did you love that? I thought that was the greatest thing. It was well received. And I don't know if anyone's on here listening and you want to check this out. You know, it's invitation only. So you go ahead and submit for a talk or you submit to be invited. But as Kaylee said, I was impressed as well as she was. But was it everything you imagined to be up on that stage? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't know how large the conference was really going to be. And so that was a significantly larger room than I anticipated. <laughs> and it was full, which I was like, oh, wow, that's flattering. <laughs> it was really cool. And then hearing people who I look up to and admire, especially from having just kind of gotten started in the scene, who got to see my talk and wanted to talk about it was so wonderful. That was such a great experience. And then the Barbie theme, that was, that was delightful. Yeah. I have actually my little pink. Yes, I there it is. Up here. I take it everywhere. I'm in love with it. It was such a, yeah, that was such a delightful quirky surprise. Yeah. It 
gave it personality. And for those, obviously, you cannot see the screen. Kaylee was showing the presenters got Yeti cups that were Barbie pink with their name in pink sparkle. And I just went up to Redmond and so I picked up mine. And so now I feel like I'm part of the group because I did not go to the Blue Hat this year. But we're getting close to running out of time. And I wanted to ask a couple things just about you. What do you like to do outside of privacy engineering? Who is Kaylee? What are some things you like to do? What do you enjoy? Do you have any hobbies aside from comedy? I am a massive book nerd. My screen is blurred, so you can't probably see my background, but in, it's just stacks of books in here. I read like crazy. I'm a huge movie nerd as well. I love a weird horror movie. And I think that's what I love about horror is they're all a little weird. And I also, you know, just recently moved closer to the beach. And so I'm being drawn to attempt to adopt all the board sports. So I'm trying to learn to skateboard and surf. Oh, wow. I'm a little far from snowboarding territory, but perhaps. Who knows? Yeah. How's it going so far with the board sports? (laughs) It's been rough. It's been rough, but it's been (laughs) fun. (laughs) It's been a lot of tumbles that I have not taken as an adult. And I think that's actually been good for me. I think it's so for you to remember how to fall. Right. (laughs) Such an important skill. And it's so easy to lose as a grown-up. And I think it's been good for me. That's one thing that I do miss a little bit from my improv days was that sense of play. And it's fun to find that again. I found just my first time trying to get into a wetsuit was the most hilarious and humiliating thing of my (laughs) life. It's humbling. (laughs) Don't look at me. (laughs) I'm trying to squeeze myself into this thing just to go and fall 42 times. But it's a fun sport. I haven't done it in forever. So I love that you're doing that. I cannot skateboard because I will break everything. So I am very impressed that you're taking that on. Are you doing the long cruising board or are you going for like the short, you're going to be with Tony Hawk kind of board? Oh, God, I hope I can do that someday. I'm nowhere (laughs) close. I'm taking a happy medium with a kind of a thick carver. And riding it on very straight, flat, obstacle-free areas. I'm still at a very basic. I'm just cruising along the beach, being happy. Kind Perfect. Of <laughs> no stress. <laughs> Someday I'll be up there doing the tricks. No, no, I won't. What's a book that you can recommend for the listeners? One that's really been so impactful for you. You can pick a couple if you cannot pick one. Oh, this is one of those questions that every time I answer it, I immediately have regrets that I did not pick right. one of. Later, you'll be like, I should have sent this other book. Exactly. <laughs> there was actually a fun book that came out this year. It was a Ruth Ware book. It was called Zero Days. Okay. And I accidentally picked it up just before I went to Hacker Summer Camp. And it ended up being awkwardly on the nose, but it was a security book, but it was about like a physical penetration tester. Wow. And it had some hilariously painful cliches that I think we've all learned to live with from literature, but it was really fun to see that represented. And I'm always sort of happy to see security and privacy show up in literature because, again, I think consumer awareness is half the battle right now. 100%. I agree. And before we go, I wanted to know, where can folks see more of Kaylee? Do you have anything coming up? Anything you want to promote? Otherwise, are there any, you know, social channels or anywhere that folks can reach out if they have more questions or, or no, don't want them to reach out? Just, just tell us where to look (laughs) at your work. (laughs) 
I'm kind of in a calm before the storm period where, where I'm starting to calm down. And now I finally have the freedom to look into other parts of the index code base, actually, that I haven't been able to. So hopefully Amazing. I'll have a little sequel next year, a spooky sequel out soon. And then I don't really have any like concrete things on the horizon, which is lovely. Yeah. It's a time to breathe. But anyone who wants to reach out, I'm more than happy to. I'm probably most accessible on LinkedIn. And Twitter slash X, I still have not <laughs> right. adjusted to that yet. I don't know what we're doing there. Right. Um, <laughs> it took me years to accept that Facebook was meta. It's going to be a while before. I'm still calling <laughs> it Facebook. <laughs> so, so absolutely feel free to, to connect with me on the socials, DM me, whatever. I'm always happy to talk. And, you know, I, I always want to get people more excited about privacy research and have more people looking at this. So, So if you're interested, let me know. Wonderful. And for those on the call, if you do a quick Google search of Kaylee's name, you will see multiple talks, especially the one we're talking about. That one for the Blue Hat conference will be up on YouTube shortly. And then there's other talks from Hacker Summer Camp that are similar, if not the same content. So there's a lot out there. And I highly recommend that folks take a look at this and dig a little deeper into some of the high level news articles that maybe you touched on, but didn't really immerse yourself in. But thank you, Kaylee, for being here. I really appreciate it. This was a great talk, very enlightening. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Blue Hat Podcast. Talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat Podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat at microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at MSFTBlueHat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.